I'm not sure how you responded to the shooting in Florida. Almost commonplace. And still within me personally an anger at America's inability to deal with the guns. And then the president comes on and doesn't mention guns. But talks about mental health. The care, the budget for the care of which he had cut not very long ago. I was angry, but it got worse. I foolishly in my anger put something onto Facebook that I <clears throat> reasonably quickly pulled down because a friend in America came back to me and talked about the fear he had sending his children to school the next morning. And another friend sent me a similar message. And suddenly I realized that there had been eight shootings where people had been killed or injured in schools in America since the start of the year. We're only in February. And that friends of mine were frightened to send their children to school. It was a very real fear. Imagine that. And still we have this hard-headedness or hard-heartedness about the right to have guns. I might have told you before, but I spoke in Nashville. I was doing a wedding 20 years ago. Caitlin was tiny. And uh, I was doing a wedding and they said to me, Oh, preach tomorrow morning. And I said, Well, what would you want me to preach on? Tell us about Belfast. It must be dangerous to live in Belfast. Now, we were only two months after our agreement, four years into the ceasefire at the time, um, but it wasn't just as bad. But the night before, I was reading the Nashville newspaper, and I saw this bit where the presbytery of Nashville, my ears went up, presbytery of Nashville, I wonder what they do. They were encouraging their members on a gun amnesty. They were asking ministers and elders of the Presbyterian or not, the Presbyterian Church in Nashville to hand in their guns as an amnesty. Now I grew up in Northern Ireland, but the very idea that elders or ministers would have guns freaked my head. It got me angry. And then a guy went on Facebook with the same gun that did the shootings in Parkland and said that he'd handed his gun in. He said he loved his gun. And he loved shooting his gun, not at people or to hurt anybody, but he didn't need it. So he was handing it in. Well, the vitriol that went on that Facebook page. Moral. Idiot. And I'm trying to work out what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. What's so funny about handing a gun in so that my friends could send their kids to school without being frightened? I was angry. And that was after the storm agreement broke down. I'm pretty convinced, because of the people telling me, that there was a very clear agreement. You can believe who tells lies or not, and We're not sure whether Jerry was in or Jerry was out, but we can be pretty sure this week that the DUP were no more honest than any other politician. There was an agreement. But some people in the party 
didn't like the agreement. Why was that? Were they really thinking it was too much money to spend on an Irish Language Act? How did they know that? Because nobody has told us how much money it was going to cost on an Irish Language Act. Were they going to be angry that we were all going to have to learn Irish to teach in schools? Because that wasn't part of the deal as far as I'm aware. And what was the deal? What was the deal? Ulster Scots Act, giving unionism their place, Irish Language Act, giving nationalism its place, probably not a lot of money if we're in agreement with it, compromise maybe, but some couldn't take the compromise and put everything on hold for what? Hard-headedness? Hard-heartedness? I was angry and frustrated. And then, then, a Protestant blog had a go at my friend Alan for speaking at the Four Corners Festival. How dare he speak in a Catholic church? And all kinds of things about Catholicism and all kinds of things about him and us, Father Martin and I. We are worthy do-gooders. Who are too polite to mention sin. Well let me tell you we're going to mention it today. Boy was I angry. Sin. Too polite to mention it. In a week like this one. I think not whatever your name was. I'm not even giving you the name because as Gladys rightfully said we quadrupled the reading of the blog by four of us from the committee deciding to read it that morning. But it was still there. But it made me think about it. Sin. We grew up with it being about middle class behavioural habits. You don't smoke. You don't drink. You don't go to the cinema because as we know that's why sin is in the word cinema even though the devil disguised it with a C. We don't go to the theatre. When I was growing up, my friend didn't come to the sound of music with us as a family. I thought it would be lovely if I was an only child. I was always looking for a mate. And so we invited my friend a few doors down to come and uh, go to the... And he was frightened in the dark. And do you know that it was 30 years before I realised that frightened in the dark was that his family thought it was a sin to go to the cinema? But that was the excuse I got. Bless him, I wonder if he's ever seen the sound of music. It's terrifyingly demonic. Um... (laughs) The sins that we grew up with. Chewing gum apparently was one at one stage as well, but I'm too young, I'm too young. And then we learned, at least some of us, that sin was far, far, far more serious than that. It's a condition that we have. That we're born with this gap. We're coming to the gap. You know I love the gap and the pushing away. But some barrier between us and God some fault in our DNA as a result of something that happened. Genesis describes us as us reaching for God and instead of getting God with that forbidden fruit, we became less than the human beings we were created to be. That's a condition that we're all with. That I've shared with us before that I didn't need to teach my children how to fight with each other or I didn't need to teach myself how to be selfish or self-indulgent or of self-interest. That it's something that's within us. That there's a fault in the DNA of the image of God within us. Sin. It's not even things we do. It's a condition and a place that we are. 
But it does work itself out in what we do. And I come back to what I mentioned a few weeks ago, and you'll probably hear as a mantra like 1010 and particles of light over the course of the next while, because I just think that Frederick Beekner is saying something when he describes sin as those things that push others away. Pushing other people away, pushing other races away, pushing other religions away, pushing members of our family away, pushing away God, but as Beekner goes on, pushing away even the parts within ourselves that cause gaps and breakdown and all kinds of things. Sin pushes away. Think of Eden. God was pushed away. Fellow humans were pushed away. Creation was pushed away. Self was pushed away. And the commandments are about those pushing away. Don't kill or steal. Think about your parents and honor them. Think about worshipping God. When we break any of the commandments, we're pushing others away. We're causing gaps and breakdowns. And that's what the prophets raged against. The pushing away of the rich to the poor or whatever other things that were happening, mainly pushing God away for idols. Sin, it's at the heart of who we are and worthy do-gooder or not, I am not too polite to mention it because to me, everything is simple. It's about sin and redemption. Everything is about sin and redemption. Now don't get me wrong, the nuances in between are incredibly complex. But the bottom line, in our DNA, there is something that pushes others away and that Jesus comes on that Good Friday to tear the barrier between us and God in two so that the reconciliation that happens between God and us, the gap that is closed, the breakage that's healed, becomes something that makes its way out into a world in our relationships with other people as we love our neighbor and love our enemy and are members of a ministry of reconciliation. It's simple. It's about sin and redemption. And the in-between, I do agree, there are some nuance. So we come to this morning and these crammed in verses in Mark chapter 1 that are part of the lectionary and I was able to use as part of the Lent studies of chapters 1 and 3. Because I think these are <clears throat> all coming together in six verses that talk about the simplicity of the sin and redemption. The change that happens. We've just baptised Jay, Jalen, little Smith. Um, as I knew him, I didn't know his name for a long, long time. <laughs> um, because that's who we, we called him. We've had this baptism. Now, we didn't have the full immersion baptism. We can talk and we can debate about that. It's a symbol. It's a symbol like the bread and the wine. It's a symbol of something that we believe is at the core of who we are as a community. And it's a symbol of sin being dealt with in the going down into the water and this resurrection life that comes, this new redemptive life. It's about sin and redemption. It's right there at the center of who we are. And Jesus goes down and gets baptized and then he goes out to be tempted in the wilderness because it's about sin and redemption. And there's going to have to be a resistance and a resilience and a fight against 
the sinfulness around us or the temptation that we fell for in the earlier part of our history that Jesus has come to deal with in the good news of a kingdom where we repent and receive the good news in belief. It's all here in these verses. The kingdom is right here because the kingdom is that new place That new place where the gaps are closed, where the breakages are threaded together and healed, where the temple, the veil in the temple is torn in two, where we love our enemies and our neighbors, the kingdom. Fourteen times in Mark's gospel does he mention kingdom, its coming, its peculiarities, to who it belongs to, to the impediments to its entry into, the kingdom. The kingdom, one um, commentator said this week, is better described as kingship or reign or sovereignty. It's not a place but a power. It is God's, I'm reading this from a commentary, it's God's dynamic potency to put right all that is wrong in this world. Sin and redemption. It's God's dynamic potency to put right all that's wrong in this world. To baptize, to wash away the sin, to have a new life. To be sprinkled by the Holy Spirit that we might live a new life. The dynamic potency of God making things right. The same commentator said, Lent is to Easter as Advent is to Christmas. God has set his kingdom into motion, which will soon go into turbo drive. You can see why I like this. Potency, dynamic potency. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom in motion going into turbo drive in the Good Friday, Easter Sunday, ascending of Jesus some weeks later. The kingdom has come on the earth. A reminder of another story that I've shared, but many of you might not have been here for. If you do the Robben Island trip when you're in Cape Town, make sure you do it. It's an incredible trip. And I think I've done it about nine or ten times and I could probably do all that they certainly do on the bus tour. If you ever want a bus tour, get the video out. I could do what they tell you because I've nearly learned it off. But one of the amazing things is when they go out to the, the, the limestone quarry where Mandela and all the prisoners sat and chipped away at this tedious, um, meaningless chipping of the limestone with little hammers just to make their lives monotonous and torturous and to blind them with the the limestone and the light in Mandela's eyes when they operated on him they brought limestone out from behind part of his eye Uh, in that place they learned to read and to write and to do politics and economics they called it the University of Robben Island which was a ridiculous thing because they were never going to get free at least that's what they must have thought through the 70s and the 80s till near the end of the 80s and even then they weren't sure what Mandela was up to and all those talks but when you talk to one of them they say this they say we were getting ready for freedom before freedom came we were getting ready for freedom before freedom came and the potency that's coming at Easter and even that's not anything like the potency still to come with the kingship of Jesus as we think eschatologically Lent in some ways is about getting ready for freedom before freedom comes. Our lives are about getting ready for the kingdom in its fullness before the kingdom in its fullness comes. It's about sin being dealt with in our lives and resurrection life getting an opportunity to live in our lives. It's about us being the gap holders. So I'm looking this week at the sin that doesn't see guns as a problem. 
And I'm thinking in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom there are no guns. I'm looking at the sin that sees sectarianism about a language, whatever side of that you're on, a problem. Because it's self-indulgent and it's hard-headed and it's hard-hearted. As Father Martin's sister said to him yesterday, I drove over a pothole today and that's more important to me than any language act we might have. I'm looking at our reaching for the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden and I'm seeing us falling short because what we were looking for was that we might be God and we might decide that we're not giving up guns or that we're going to put this on the other part of our community because we should be the ones that are worshipped. Because we're the ones that know it all. Because we're the ones that make the sectarian boundaries. To arrogantly know everything leaves us pushing away and breaking up sin. It becomes prejudice. And prejudice gives demons a place to flourish. So the title of your sermon today is, or the title of the service is, Every Time You Wash Your Face. I said this as we were opening the well for a Catholic school in the highlands of Uganda and realized it's Martin Luther I'm quoting, which might not have been right, but I just knew that we had baptism in common and they'd opened a well and so therefore there was water. And so Martin Luther has said, Every time you wash your face, remember your baptism. Every time you wash your face, remember that it's about sin and redemption. Every time you wash your face, remember that we reach to be more than we were and we end up less than we were and it caused us to be pushers away. But that Christ has come and that we're heading towards Easter weekend where he will tear that curtain, where he will burst through that tomb, where we will have a kingdom in turbocharge, where we have the potency of the kingdom of God in order that we might redeem that which should be redeemed. And so we head into Lent. And I'm looking at my own prejudice. We were there last week, weren't we? I'm there again. As we go into Lent, I'm thinking, what is the blind spot in my life the way it seems to me that people have a blind spot over guns? Or people have a blind spot over an Irish language that we happily have a service here. And last week, uh, Michal, who uh, lectures in at Queen's, turned up in Fitzroy and he had plenty of people to, well, he had one or two people to talk to. I wish there was more of us, but I'm never getting the grammar. What is, what is it? What is the prejudice? What is the, the blindness of the prejudice there? And if there's blindness and prejudice there, what's my blindness and prejudice? In fact, what is the blindness and prejudice of the worthy do-gooders of the Four Corners Festival. Because we need to ask that too. And we need to remember our baptism every time I wash my face so that I get rid of my prejudices, so that I have them cleansed by what Christ has done for me and I burst through to live this new life. But that's what Lent should be. Lent should be the new life. Lent should be those things we do as we get ready for the kingdom coming. Lent should be things that we do rather than things that we just give up. Now, if we need to give up, let's give up. But let's give up on positive ways forward. The redemption side. The bursting out of the water side. 
the commitment to getting rid of our own selfish, self-indulgent side. Let's look deep into who we are and look deep into who we can be because of the potency of the kingdom of God and because of the turbo drive heading towards Easter. I'm going to finish with a prayer that I've prayed before. F.W. de Klerk came and went with our students when we were in South Africa one year and he talked to us about peacemaking. And he told us that we were going to be peacemakers. If we were going to get ready for the kingdom coming, then we had to search ourselves until we'd search to the marrow of our souls. And then he said, the second thing that you do, just check the searching of the first time. Even if you've searched to the marrow of your soul, search again. Let's search deep down for the DNA, for the faultiness in our lives that has caused the American parkland, that has caused the breakdown of our agreement, and let's bury it in the waters of baptism to live in the turbocharged, turbo-driven possibilities of the kingdom. Let me read this as a prayer as we close. Let's allow our eyes to fall shut. Search me, O God, down to the marrow of my soul. Take every selfish part of me away that would stop me from being whole. Help me peer inside my prejudice to see the incentive of all my actions. Make kind the reflexes of my heart. Make gentle the strength of my reactions. Help me squint at every weakness that comes from family and neighborhood to smash all the idols of destruction and create the art of all that is good. Search me, O God, down to the very marrow of my soul. Take every selfish part of me away that would stop me from being whole. And when I've let you search, O God, believing to be in your spirit's collusion, let me look just one more time for any remnants of my own delusion. Amen.